Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. Hey, how are you doing? Before we get started today, I do have a favor to ask of all of you. I did start a channel over on YouTube in the last year, year and a half or so, and yeah, I'm really trying to promote that. And the reason being is I think the content that I'm putting out here, you know, we're doing all right with some of these guests that are coming on. And I think it deserves to be put in front of more people. And one of the best ways, of course, of doing that is through a platform like YouTube. Now, if you do interact with these videos on YouTube, that algorithm loves it. And that's the only way that it knows to continually share that content, put it in front of more people. So yeah, I could be a little bit biased here, but I think, you know, finding out about some of these careers is great for young people. It's great for mid-career professionals. So yeah, like, subscribe, it would help a ton. All right, well, let's get into this episode today. Really excited to share this episode with you. This is a profession that we all have some degree of connection with. Some might have some good experiences, some not so good, or somewhere in between. But the commonality here is that we all have a link to this. What I'm referring to, of course, is this profession of teaching. But what makes this conversation that I'm going to share with you in just a moment that much more compelling is that the guest that I have on today, her name is Katie Whitfield. She is at the absolute top of her game. And when I say that, I mean she was awarded the top history teacher award for an entire country, for the country of Canada at one point in her career. So, of course, we're going to be treated to some really, really unique insights, ways of looking at the work, you know, how she sort of breaks down her classroom management, how she goes about it all. Not only that, you're also going to hear how she blends the personal into the professional. I mean, she's traveled to over 60 countries and what that means, how she connects that up to her passion within the classroom. And she also has this really interesting story and it involves a tattoo, involves an educational lesson plan. And yeah, I'm just going to leave it there for you. You're just going to have to tune in and listen to the whole talk to, to get the answers to that one. But yeah, you, you're not going to want to miss that. Beyond all of that, we have a really engaging conversation on AI, the impact on education moving forward. So all up, I mean, there's so much covered in this talk. It is an absolute treat, and I'm really, really looking forward to sharing it with all of you. So let me more formally introduce you to her, and we can get started. Katie Winfield is a Toronto-based, award-winning history, French, and drama teacher. And she has taught students of all pathways and has held curriculum leadership positions focusing on school-wide initiatives, arts, equity, and community partnerships, as well as in Canadian and world studies. Now, in 2015, she was a recipient of the Governor General's History Award for Excellence in Teaching for her inquiry-based learning unit on Toronto's St. John's Ward. She also won a Toronto-wide Excellence in Teaching Award in 2011. Needless to say, I mean, Katie certainly knows her way around the classroom. Katie holds a Master's of Education in Curriculum Studies and Teacher Development from the Ontario Institute for Studies and Education of the University of Toronto, which focused on inquiry-based learning, communities of practice, and social justice education. 
2016-2017, she served as the education coordinator for the Vimy Foundation, a nonprofit organization that educates Canadian, British, and French youth about the legacy of the First World War and empowers them to share their learning experience in their local communities. Now, Katie's curriculum writing work has focused on the inquiry-based learning for intermediate drama courses using historical objects in the Aga Khan Museum in Toronto. As a French as a second language, history, and dramatics arts teacher, Katie's teaching philosophy lends itself to interdisciplinary and cross-curricular approaches to learning. She is passionate about finding authentic and meaningful ways of connecting teachers locally, nationally, and globally through collaborative inquiry-based activities and is committed to finding effective opportunities to engage teachers, and in particular, students' voices in all areas of the curriculum. So with all that noted, here's my conversation with Katie Whitfield. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? Yeah, really well, really well. I'm excited for this talk for a number of different reasons, but uh, you know, one of them, just right out of the gate here, I mean, I think this is a profession that obviously a lot of people can relate to. We all have this shared experience of, of going through various educational systems and, uh, you know, your background, we're going to get into it rather quickly here, you know, as an awarded teacher, you know, I'm really curious to hear about your approach and what makes, you know, your, your philosophical sort of approach to the whole craft different than others and, and rewarding for students. So yeah, really excited for this talk. Great. Thanks so much. Well, I, I, I just finished an exciting teaching day with my students here. Uh, and so it's great to be able to share a little bit about what I do and, and, and how I've been sort of recognized for it. Teaching has always been something that I have been surrounded by. My mom was a teacher. My sister's a teacher. We have family, people in my family have been teachers. And I've been influenced by a lot of amazing teachers from the time I was really small. If you went and read my kindergarten report, it would say, Katie is a lovely child who likes to play with others. And I think it would often say, and she likes to teach others. And so that was something that uh, I think I came by very honestly from when I was really small. I spent a lot of my childhood at summer camps, often taking on small groups or working with other people. Also spent a lot of time in different student organizations of different kinds. I was a girl guide when I was a kid. You know, lots of different things in the community of of sort of seeing good teaching and having good experiences. And so I think that, you know, the, the daily life of a teacher, you know, definitely has the, you know, planning of the lessons, doing the research, you know, doing the marking, you know, which is not always everybody's favorite part of the job. But the part of the process that I really love the most is the creative side of it. One of the things that always really excites me is asking big questions. And a colleague of mine once said, keep asking questions until you find the answer. And even when you found it, keep asking a few more. And so as a history teacher, that's something that has really driven my practice for a really, really long time. And I think that that curiosity started when I was little, when I started to ask the word why. And I think that history teachers' greatest question is being able to ask why, but the work that we do a lot of in in history teaching now is around historical thinking. So, you know, you start off with the who, what, when, where, why, the five WH, as some of us would know it. But now we're looking at, like, whose voices are included, whose voices are not, what perspectives are we considering? We're looking at how do we work with source material, amongst other things. And then looking at the ethics of things. And, you know, when the students in front of you are coming from all different cultural backgrounds, You can't simply tell the story out of the book. And I know we'll probably talk a little bit about my teaching philosophy later. But, you know, I've been very fortunate uh, to have had some great teacher mentors who modeled for me what good teaching looked like. I've been honored by a couple of uh, awards uh, throughout my career. Some of that has been supported by students, some by colleagues. 
But I think, you know, as you and I were sort of talking about just off camera, somebody saw that I was doing something that was cool or that was interesting or that was innovative. And I think that as teachers, like that's our responsibility today to like basically turn the light on for students to say, oh, you're really interested in that. That's so curious. Let's dive into it together. And I think, you know, being an avid reader and somebody who travels a lot, this curiosity is what has actually helped me to keep going and keep being excited about being a teacher 20 years later. Yeah, well, I think a lot of it probably comes down to connecting, connecting with students, right? And if you can hook them early on with the content in a way that that touches them in some form or manner, it, it connects to their life, it connects to reality, you know, versus just reading a text off and like analyzing it from a literary perspective only, you know, and like that's where you can sometimes lose students. But if you can kind of plug it into how it relates to them and their life and culture and all these different points, that, that, that's where the magic is, I, I would suspect, or I would think at least. But yeah, absolutely. When I first started teaching, you know, we were still using like we were not really using a lot of the Internet at that point in time. You know, everybody was still teaching with textbooks and and you might write a document on an MS Word document or something like that. Now, the fact that we have access to so many source materials, the fact that there's been so much money invested by by cultural organizations, by historical spaces, by museums, the opportunity to go outside of the classroom and go and visit spaces has really changed the way in which we do our teaching and learning. And I think, you know, I mean, to your point, when I have a student who is Bangladeshi sitting in my class or a student who is a new immigrant from China or a student, you know, who's just arrived from the Ukraine, their learning experience is not the same as their Canadian peers. And I often think when I walk into a classroom every day, uh, having thought about, you know, the ins and outs, like, so not, not so preoccupied about is the lesson going to go well? Is it, is it going to go, if it's going to go the way I want it, I want it to, because the students need to do some of the driving as to what happens. And, and as a teacher facilitator, which is what I do a lot of now, there's possibilities for us being able to navigate. And if the lesson doesn't meet its end goal, then we come back to it tomorrow. But I think the one thing that is that is interesting to me is when you allow for students to have the space to be part of how the lesson is curated, what choices they want to make, how do you want to demonstrate what you know, regrouping them in different ways, you know, like you're going to do this independent thinking and then you're going to share it with somebody else. Or, you know, I know you're really artistic, so maybe you're going to create a poster for me. Oh, but, you know, you're not very good at drawing or you say that you aren't, even though they probably are. And then they're going to do a little podcast or whatever that that there's sort of an opportunity to like shift between what content and from who and from whose perspective. And obviously the voices that I can't represent they're always the voices that appear either through a source document or a video or a podcast. And then there's choices about how are we going to do our inquiry? Are we going to do it together? Am I going to do all the steps? Or are you going to choose? And then at the end of it, then you're going to have to tell me what you learned or demonstrate to me what you learned. And for each student, that'll look different. So when I walk into my classroom, I've got 30 different people with the goal of teaching them the same skill, the same goal to inquire about the same similar type of content, but knowing that each one of them has a particular skill set that I need to figure out and the challenges that each of those bring makes the learning experience so interesting every day. You know, I mean, I think people would say, you know, like teachers, as they get into a pattern, you know, do things exactly as the way they are. I put the date on the board maybe, but like, and, and ask a few big questions, but, but I think I trust myself 
because of my experience and because of the want to build relationships with students that if they're not feeling it, and I decided that I wanted to spend a long time on that, then we ended up quickly. Today, we were talking about the dropping of the atomic bomb and they were curious about the ethics of it. So we spent half an hour on that. I thought that was going to be a five minute conversation. But then because the question was a good question or when somebody asked a question and they answered it. Well, it's it's engaging them, right? And then, yeah, they're showing interest. Then, yeah, yeah, you kind of have to roll with it, don't you? Yeah, and I think to try and keep it can keep it keep it current, right? I mean, teaching history, you know, everybody says, "Oh, history's in the past," and you know, you talk to a lot of people, history's boring. No, a- actually, history's fascinating, and it's unfolding as as it's going on, and that they're part of it, which I think is also exciting. All right, you know, we've had a nice discussion and conversation on teaching itself. Maybe we could launch into the segment here, Coloring Wikipedia, which you know addresses standard definition of what teaching is. First, though, let me just read this off. This is coming from Wikipedia as they define what a teacher is. All right. A teacher, also called a school teacher or formerly an educator, is a person who helps students to acquire knowledge, competence, or virtue via the practice of teaching. A teacher's professional duties may extend beyond formal teaching. Outside of the classroom, teachers may accompany students on field trips, supervise study halls, help with the organization of school functions, and serve as supervisors for extracurricular activities. They also have the legal duty to protect students from harm, such as that which may result from bullying, sexual harassment, racism, or abuse. In some education systems, teachers may be responsible for student discipline. And again, we all roughly know what teachers do, but I think it's interesting to examine these sort of definitions and then add on or maybe de-emphasize this, you know, to, to, to really bring out or to capture what a teacher really does. And you were just speaking to some of these points, I suppose. Sure. But is there anything else you'd like to, to add to this or de-emphasize perhaps? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the the role of a teacher has evolved and and, is, and will continue to evolve. And I think that's the exciting part of the, the profession. I would say that if somebody were to summarize like five other words that they would add, I would say that I do a lot of mentorship in my role as a teacher, mentoring students, uh, mentoring colleagues, mentoring administrators, mentoring community partners, building relationships. I would say that I have a lot of responsibilities as a guide. The guide doesn't always have to show exactly the way, but it has to provide the the boundaries or create the boundaries for learning and create some of the tools or to engage the tools we're going to use for learning. I do a lot of facilitation of learning. I think I mentioned that a little bit before earlier. This idea of curating experiences for students is part of that facilitation, similar in a way in which like a docent would do in a museum, for example, or a camp counselor would do with a bunch of students playing a game. I do a lot of work as a co-constructor of learning with students and as their cheerleader as we go through. Teachers have to slow down their step. Uh, and I like that kind of idea of like we're all on this journey and some students I work with, I got I've got to be ready to run and I'm in a lot of training to be able to support what they need. And for some of them, I need to move at a very, very slow and and tempoed pace for them. And I'd say the last thing that I would sort of add is that teachers have a real responsibility, particularly post-pandemic, for creating opportunities for engagement and curiosity. We spent three years or two and a half years engaging students online where we never even could read their emotion. And so part of that is really, we've had had to add to our responsibilities the sort of knowledge of social emotional learning. And uh, how do you support students who have experienced so much trauma in so many different ways? And, you know, we live in an ever-changing society where it could be anything. It could be violence on the subway. It could be climate change. It could be fear of where they're going to go in the future. It could be, you know, illness around COVID. That we have a 
I would say a guardian role. I wouldn't say necessarily parental. Most of my students have parents who care for them very much. But I think that those are sort of those added responsibilities that get added to that. And no question, you know, we supervise and and we hold those responsibilities of working together. I think a lot of those words you could add like co-leader, co-facilitator, co that we we hold responsibilities to 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 do that work with our students. You know, at the beginning of the school year, we co-construct the expectations in the classroom. And the co of that is a big co because I'm also a learner in the room um, mm-hmm. and I have mm-hmm. lots to learn. And I see myself as one who is the receiver of student learning as well as the one who facilitates it. Yeah, it strikes me. I mean, that definition sort of reads off, at least to me, something like a 1950s, 1960s, sort yeah. of like really traditional yeah. approach to teaching. Yeah. You know, the, I was going to yeah. say it's really bureaucratic. Yeah, yeah, maybe that, that, like, that also like kind of rings true, right? check off your right? boxes. Yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. Check, check, yeah. check, check, check. Yeah. Whereas what yeah. you're sharing is kind of like the more modern approach to it all. Yeah. And I think that's, again, one of the reasons why I love this segment is because it really kind of brings to light yeah. the true essence and of I, And what, I think, you know, I mean, the the like all of the different things in the definition about the legalities. I mean, no more is anything regulated than teaching at the moment. You know, I mean, we're, we're, like, we're part of a college that, that regulates you know, people's behavior and and people's actions. And, you know, I think as the internet and social media and sort of finding ourselves in public spaces, teachers are are teachers both in and outside of the classroom. If you run into a student down the street, you have to be mindful of who you are and you're an upstanding person in in society. Um, And I think that that's why teachers are held to such a high regard. You know, and then when a kid runs into you 20 years later, the first thing they'll hope is that you remember their name. (laughs) <laughs> and then you hope that they had good thoughts of their experience with you, right? Yeah, um, yeah, and in yeah, both yeah. cases, I hope the same. Most often, I still remember that. So. Yeah. All right. Why don't we slide into this next segment really quickly here, a day in the life. And you know, I'd be quite curious to hear about you know what it is that you bring to the, the craft itself. And I kind of want to approach the segment a little bit differently. We've already touched upon like what teachers do. But again, drawing on some of your awards, you know, some of your accomplishments in your career, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear your approach to the profession, how it might differ versus somebody who's just sort of clocking in and clocking out. You know, I think that would be really fascinating. So I'm constantly thinking about teaching and learning, (laughs) whether I'm sitting on the subway. I get a sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. whether, Whether I'm going for a walk, there are times where, you know, I would sit there the night before planning out my lessons, not necessarily in a formal sense anymore, but we post our lessons for our students to be able to look at so that they know what the plan is. And I definitely have a plan. But there are often times where I will, I've got about a 15 minute subway trip in the morning, and I will have read something in a tweet or read something in a magazine or heard something in a podcast I was listening to. And then I'll think, oh, yeah, that's really cool. I should explore that. And sometimes it's just a tiny thread and sometimes it really becomes like the center core of what I'm actually going to do. I think that one of the things that has been noted about the teaching and learning that I facilitate is the fact that I take the students outside. And whether that is that we're traveling to a different historical time period because we're traveling in time, and that's like the joy of being a history teacher is the time travel, whether or not we're then moving ourselves into a different language, I also teach French, or whether that's that's the idea of like sort of like looking at our civic responsibility and going out into the community and doing stuff, whether that's historical field work or gathering information and then gathering data and then doing something with it. A lot of my work has been recognized for that. And this idea of allowing students to be inquirers of their own learning. The Excellence in Teaching Award that I won in 2011, that was like kind of at the halfway point of my career. 
And it's interesting because there were six of us that were recognized. And I was one of the only history teachers that year. There was an arts teacher and a business teacher. And these people had done like incredibly amazing things. And the thing that I think amazed me about it is that I didn't think I was doing anything extraordinary. But colleagues had said, you know what, like you actually are. The fact that you're like engaging yourself in running the student newspaper, producing theater productions, that I was representing the school, speaking at school-wide programs. I co-facilitated a, a school a school board-wide leadership program. And so those types of things that, I, that most people would call extras, the extras that you were doing, but which I was considering part of the job. In 2015, I was the recipient of the Governor General's Award for Excellence in Teaching Canadian History, which is the top history award, teaching award in the country. A big one, yeah. And, and I had been nominated for that award and had, had been a finalist uh, in the top 25 before that. And and I and I I was flattered that at that point. But then I knew that if I wanted to even be considered for such an award, and even though I had been nominated, that I had to really step out. I needed to do something that was really cool, that was really interesting. And and that particular work, you know, was inspired by um, a photo exhibit that I'd seen about the city, about the history of the city. And I mean, I've talked a little bit about my curiosity, but I'm I'm the one who reads all the plaques in the neighborhood. I'm the one that, you know, will be waiting at the a street light and I'll see a, a name at, of, of a person's name and I'll I'll Google what it is and, and find out what it is. Or, you know, I'll I'll find a plaque in the ground or I'll I'll note something on a building. And and that kind of curiosity made me think like, hmm. The photos that I'd seen, I'd never seen before. And I thought, well, my students might really connect with that. And we've talked a little bit about the theme of connecting. And so I thought, you know, my curiosity for for bringing the learning into the classroom, the opportunity to take my students outside kind of connected to that historical fieldwork. And that was innovative. People, Nobody was doing that at the time. Mm. Now, a lot more people do it now. And the work, obviously, when you get that kind of acknowledgement and recognition is, is noted across the country. And, you know, I often laugh after that happened, they put my name on, a, in, they wrote an article in a magazine, they put my face in the magazine, wow. uh, and they made a documentary of my teaching, which I thought wow. was really cool. They actually went on a field trip with us and like saw the teaching. And so I, I jokingly say to my students, have you ever Googled my name? And some of them said, yeah, I have. And I realized that like, because they've done that, all of that record of like an archived record, if you want to think about it in that way, of my teaching is evidence of good work, but it's good work because of students that agreed to come along. You can have a great idea in teaching, but it's only a great idea if it lands and if the students say, this is so cool. And I think maybe just to come around in full circle, the first activity I do with a group of students is I give them a piece of paper and I tell them to make a paper airplane. I don't give them any instructions. I just say, we're going to do it. And then and then they build the paper airplane. Now. As they do it, I'll say, you can use whatever tools you want. You can ask me for whatever you want. So if you want paper, you want scissors, you want this, you want that. Some of them, you know, pull out their phones and they Google how to do it. And they look at the person over beside them and they see it. And then I say, now we're going to fly them. And so they all go stand on the periphery of the classroom and we take turns flying them. And I'll say, I want you to observe two things. Number one, how does it fly and how does it land? And then after we do that and we kind of observe and I say, well, if you could come up with a word to describe what you saw or what happened, then take that back to your table and know that you can change either something about the design or about how it flew. And then we fly them again. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because we talk a lot in, in our class about the fact that if we all have the same tools, we may still not have the same outcome. 
Mm-hmm. And, and, and we also talk about the fact that though you may be coming in with all the tools and all the bells and whistles of the things that you need, we don't all start at the same spot in our learning or in our understanding. And that we also have to have an awareness that each other, as other students in the class and the teacher, some of us are going to fly awesome and start really, really high. And some of us are going to crash land because eventually the plane's going to go somewhere. The takeaways for the students are the thoughts around the fact that learning is that chance to like rethink, to revisit, to come back to it, that in the mistakes, the learning happens. I had a university professor once say to me when I described how learning was so hard in this class I was taking, he said, it is in the confusion that the learning happens. And I I hold that in my pocket often. And, you know, the the last thing I'll just say about the airplanes is that, you know, the students said that they felt that like doing that activity on the first day of school gave them permission to try. It gave them opportunities to ask questions and to know that there doesn't have to be one right answer. As one who cares a lot about uh, about those experiences, I tattooed the paper airplane to my arm. And and the idea of the, the notion of that I have a responsibility every day to support the tools that they have to build the plane and to cushion the landing however they fall. Yeah. yeah. And then to re-invite them again the next day to try again. Yeah. To me, I mean, listening to all of that, it, it, it strikes me as one, the passion. I think, you know, almost instantly in this conversation, it's come across loud and clear, you know, that's there. But also, too, it's that dedication, you know, the dedication to it and the commitment to to really trying to, to find ways, again, returning to that word of connecting with students and helping them find themselves in a moment, I, I guess, you know. And then, again, that's kind of where the, the magic happens, where the learning can take place that, you know, maybe they, they, they gain some confidence in this. Well, I can do this no matter what level they're at, you know. and as far as this day in the life segment goes, you know, I, I think you bring that every single day. At least that's the impression that I'm getting here. And that's probably what is distinguishing a lot of what you do in your work. I mean, that passion will fuel you through, help you create these great lesson plans, help you notice things outside of the classroom in your spare time that you can bring into the classroom and then introduce to students that, again, returns to this notion of connecting. So, yeah, I can kind of see how you know, your approach would be different versus, again, somebody who's just sort of clocking in, clocking out. Yeah, I really like that. Like teaching's a calling, I think. I think, I, I, I think in my case, did I think it would be what it became? I, I mean, I think it's changed over time. I, I, I do think it's the only job that I would want to do. I think that that is, that is a certainty for sure. But I also, I also think that it's really hard to turn it off. You know, when you become really passionate about things, your, your downtime is really critical because you hold you hold responsibility for so many different people and you have to fuel yourself and that's why summers important for those or summers or vacations are important for teachers that's <laughs> how we recharge and we refuel all right well why don't we slide into this next segment here katie at q a discovery and kind of continue this back and forth and this first question you know, I, I'd like to get to your teaching philosophy. You've already explained a lot of it to this point, but there is one quote when I was researching for this talk and about you, this quote by historian John Hope Franklin. I'm just going to read that off, not only for you, but also for listeners here, and maybe you could, uh, you could speak to this a little bit. So here's the quote. We must go beyond textbooks, go out into the untrodden depths of the wilderness and travel and explore and tell the world the glories of our journey. I love that. I absolutely love that. Mm-hmm. But uh, maybe you could talk to me about that. And what, what what makes that resonate for you so much? For sure. And, you know, it's interesting when you're in teacher's college, they ask you what your teaching philosophy is. 
And that's one of my two quotes. I'll maybe talk to the other one afterwards. But I think the other thing, the thing about teaching and learning is that students are engaged when they get to get outside of the mundanity of the everyday. You know, I mean, our, our students have so many things pulling them to stay in bed, <laughs> to play video games, to do all <laughs> sorts of things that they'd rather be doing. And so that idea of taking them into the unknown, obviously in a facilitated kind of way, in a safe way where there's boundaries and, and, and you know, training for how we're going to explore. But that idea of being able to sort of explore and that being kind of okay. You know, there's so many other different subjects that we study. I mean, I think in literature, you do it in the social sciences and humanities. You definitely get that opportunity for exploration, whereas some of the more pedantic, you know, math science courses, like you're still trying to prove things and you're still investigating, but it's a little bit more regimented in terms of the structure of it. And so I think the reason why this quote resonates so much with me and the irony that I write textbooks and I don't teach with them, I think is is somewhat funny in this bit. But um, this idea that you can't just use one solid text from which to do your learning. And I think, you know, when I was in school, everyone had their standard text and you wrote your name on the inside of it. And, you know, the teacher started on page five and, you know, sometimes you go to page six and you go back and forth and so on. And you maybe ask, answer the questions at the end of the chapter. But I think the other thing that I like about this is the idea that that the goal of it is not only to look at like negative experiences and learning, you know, this idea of like, oh, we look at conflict and we look at all of these challenges, but the glories of our journey. John Hope Franklin is an African-American uh, historian and was the leader of a, of, of, a, of, a, of a university in the United States. The name of it escapes me at the moment. But that really resonated with me, this idea of we're looking at alternative stories, the ones that are often missing from the narrative, the ones that you know, refute the danger of the single story. If you connect that to the Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie's TED Talk that some of us use as a, a, as kind of a core video of, of, of sort of challenging mm. narrative. But it really resonates with me as a world traveler. This past March, I hit my 60th country that I traveled to. The country I traveled to on my own was England when I was just, just before I was a teacher and to be hitting my 45th year and to have visited 60 countries uh, on five continents. Get out of town. Yeah. It's impressive. It's pretty awesome. And, you know, I mean, I think part of the the learning that I love through my travel is the fact that I have the privilege of being able to do that. And not all my students can say they're ever going to get to Greenland or that they're ever going to get to New Zealand or that they're ever going to be able to go to Morocco and walk through the souks in Morocco or to spend a night in the desert. And so that idea of me bringing the outside into the classroom and then them being able to have this 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 opportunity to engage with that learning i think is really important and you know i think traditional learning really was about textbooks and i don't i don't i don't refute the use of a text it's just one but that's only one book yeah, it's one source of information one right? source exactly. 100% and we have we have the luxury now of you know using so many different ways to engage through photographs through, through interviews, through source material that has been uh, lifted from the archives now. There's so many opportunities for that. And I think also, like before I was a teacher, I was an educational bus tour guide. So after being a camp counselor, when I was in university, I got a job working for an educational bus tour company. So I traveled to Quebec City, Montreal, Sudbury, Niagara Falls with students. We reenacted events as they happen in historic spaces. You know, and then when I decided for real that I wanted to become a teacher, 
I was so grateful for, for all of the relationships that I observed between students and their teachers, you know, that was just basically happening, unfolding right in front of me. And the idea of like, you know, having to like on the spot, come up with ways to like make them un- the, the most uninteresting interesting was something that really resonated with me. And so I think even now in the travel that I'm doing, there are still parts of the world yet to be connected to. I definitely, I wouldn't say that I choose places based on what has happened there, but I have been to Myanmar, which is a country that unfortunately, because of the state of the world, you can't go into anymore. And I feel blessed that I'd had the chance to go there. I think also that you get a different sense when you go to places and travel when you walk in 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 spaces where people have traveled before and you again you have the freedom to chart your own path uh to sort of follow that narrative and and you know I do my own writing and my own blogging I've written a couple of books about those experiences I've led student trips overseas student battlefield tours in Europe uh I've traveled with students in China I worked in Ecuador with students as well and so that opportunity of like taking the learning on its feet and having the students connect to the land is so important. You know, I often say that if you're quiet enough, the ground speaks to us. And I think that that's definitely true in like spaces where people have experienced loss. Like I've definitely can connect to that in cemeteries and spaces. When I walked in the killing fields in Cambodia, I felt that that same that that same experience. But I think you can also experience the same elation of walking down. Uh, a street in New Orleans where there's beads hanging from the tree and that part of like the cultural experience and being in those spaces. So any opportunity I get to sort of get out onto the land and to get on a plane and leave, uh, it has been really cool and pandemic ended or sort of ended uh, ahead of the Galapagos, which was uh, an incredible uh, opportunity to, to be in those spaces. And I count myself really lucky that I've been able to do that. But I also know that with those experiences comes the responsibility to tell and to share. And I think great teachers are great storytellers, even if they stretch the truth sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think like it's this role of inspiring students as well through those stories, you know, it inspires them to get out and to interact with the world and inspires them to dig a little bit deeper into the content or the the theme of whatever you're teaching in that moment, because it connects up to something that resonates with them, you know, and returning to the teaching, like, to me, it sort of strikes me as that you're traveling for your own enjoyment, of course, but also too, I'm getting the sense that you're traveling for the teaching in a way, you know, like you, you're going out, you're exploring yourself you're finding things like, oh, this would be great. This would be great to bring back into the classroom. I can build this into this unit or whatever I'm going to be doing here. I really like that. And I think that's, again, a marker of what's probably distinguishing you and what you're doing. And uh, it would be great, I think, for a lot of aspiring teachers or even teachers right now that are maybe stuck in a bit of a rut. Like there's so many different opportunities to really liven up the classroom if you just sort of put on these different types of goggles and interpret the world differently. You can really, uh, you know, expand one's horizons. Yeah. That kind of resonated with me, this idea of like the value of a historic object, you know, this yeah. idea of like collecting objects and collecting things. I often joke that I put things in my pocket and I'll save them for later. You know, like the kid who you know, finds like the cool stone or the cool Mm. button or things like that. And I think part of that is the fact that, you know, many of my students have never seen themselves in their own learning and that I take that on as a, as a, not in a, not in a, in a forced way, but it, it is the teacher's responsibility 
based on culturally relevant and responsive pedagogy, which is like very foundational in the type of equity-based work that we're doing now, that the students see themselves. And, you know, uh, a student two years ago said, you know, Miss, you've done a great job. You know, we've heard about Asian history, Chinese, Japanese. You know, we've heard about intern the internment of, of Austrians and Hungarians and Italians and so on. She said, but I'm Muslim. And I, and I don't feel like I've heard my story as much as we can. Now the course had two weeks to go. And I took, I said, I don't know, to be honest. I said, I've never been taught myself uh, some of the history that you're asking me about. So I, I dove into the internet and found what I could find. And, and what I connected to in Canada is the fact that the first Muslims in Canada had been here since 1832. And one of them was a freed black slave that had come from West Africa that had settled in the United States and ended up in Chatham, Ontario, and somebody had recorded his story. Well, then I started to dig a little bit further. And then we have two stories of a family that came from Scotland and one that came from the United States. And the first Muslim on the census was 1868. I thought, well, then they've been missing from the narrative. And so then we found opportunities of bringing those conversations in. And the student said to me after that, and I had to, and you know, I, I, I checked in with them about all of the sort of formalities of using correct language. I think language is important right. in teaching and right. learning too, right. that, you know, we're being uh, culturally res- responsive, but also sensitive to the use of language appropriately and the pronunciation of names and, and, and so on. Anyways, the student said to me that that was the first time they had ever seen themselves connected since they had been in school. So when they're in 10 or 11 years, it's the first time they'd ever seen themselves. And, you know, when, when another student decides for an assignment that they're going to choose, you know, a queer Asian filmmaker because that connects to them or that they're going to choose an African-American, uh, sorry, an African-Canadian black athlete or that they're going to connect with a Japanese scientist because that's who they are. Like how liberating for them. And mm-hmm. to know that like to the point that you made earlier about sort of inspiring them, like they are the the potential that they have to be those that are standing on the shoulders of those giants. You know, we have so many ancestors that we can connect back to and and that that these are just stepping stones for them to just sort of explore and to see not all of these people, you know, had easy routes to get there. Nothing in life is easy, but that they can see coming full circle on the question about the glories of the journey as well as in the struggle so that they then have the courage to then tell their own story. Yeah, It's so exciting to watch. It's like one yeah. of the coolest things in teaching. Yeah. And then I, I also get to learn from it. It's so, so enriching. It's like going on a trip, but you don't even have to leave the classroom. <laughs> all right. All right. You know, I'm certainly no expert on education. I have been fortunate in speaking with a number of different people uh, on this program. And sure. I mean, there's been calls for educational reform for a number of years. And yet it's still, I don't know, we still seem, generally speaking, stuck. You know, a lot of these sort of 1950s, 1960s approaches, not just perhaps within Canada, but like globally speaking, you know, are kind of mm-hmm. just stuck there. We're, we're not moving forward. And I get the sneaking suspicion that a lot of people, the ones who are calling for reform are the ones that are doing things like you are, you know, that, that the, what you're doing should be the norm, not the mm-hmm. special necessarily. And I'd love to know what, what, what it is that you think that's holding things back within education. This might be the monster of a question here, but uh, I'd love yeah. to hear what you're going to say all the same. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's funny, like we still exist in Canada in very colonial structures for education. 
like students sit in desks that are the desk that I'm even sitting in in this classroom. The desk is attached to the chair. You know, the idea that 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 the day is regulated by bells and clocks and and, and things like that. You know, I mean, like I laugh that, you know, there, there are now dry erase boards as opposed to like green chalkboards. And, you know, we use a whole bunch of technology. But I think the the one thing that honestly is standing in the way of these systems is sort of a belief in tradition, number one, and this colonial expectation that we've had that education should have this function, that we are preparing students for future employment. Mm. I think that's part of it. I mean, there's when I was in university, yeah. there was a lot of this conversation about you know, neoliberal ideas of like, do the students have, and I think this is still the case, the 21st century competencies to be able to prepare for the workforce. But we all know that not all of our students are going to post-secondary to be at top flight universities. We're going to need people in the trades. We're going to need people that are going to be service workers. We're going to need people that are going to, you know, change their careers at different points in time. I think part of what is happening is that part of it is how tightened the systems have become because of the lack of funding of what we want to dream about. You know, there's, I mean, I teach in Ontario, obviously, and there are constant cuts to education and teachers are constantly, uh, you know, screaming about a need for more resources, particularly for our most vulnerable and most marginalized students. You know, I mean, I I think it's so interesting now that, you know, everybody gets a, a laptop. Okay, well, they get a laptop, but do they know how to use it? Do we have all the training to be able to do that kind of work? I hasten to say a little bit that adults are in the way, but I think that adults to a degree are in the way um, of of, of how this change happens. I hold a leadership position in our school around activating student voice and student engagement. If you want to really know how to change the system, some teachers would say, well, the kids don't know. Well, yeah, they do actually, because they do care about what's going on. And if you're looking at why they're showing uh, expressions of apathy, it's because they're not feeling connected. They're not feeling like that they are being heard. And so part of the call for educational reform, I think, is a need to shift away from adults only sitting at the table to having some young people sit at the table. I mean, if you think about like the learning experience that your parents would have had or that our parents' generation would have had, and then what we have inherited, it's not that different. It's not mm-hmm. that yeah, far. That's, that's, I mean, it's that's my a point, bit. you know, like yeah. that's, that's it. It hasn't changed all that much. And yet everything around us, our world is changing. I mean, it's changing yeah, year to year. For Every sure. Every five years, we're turning yep. things upside down. Yep. So it seems, you know, ridiculous that that the systems haven't adapted as, as well as they, you know, they could have, I suppose. Well, and I think in Ontario, you know, there's a lot of autonomy about, uh, like we have curriculum documents and we have to meet the overall expectations, but it's up to the individual teacher to decide. What that teaching and learning looks like. Now, that is not as that that is a way more open than it is in other parts of the world. In England, for example, you know you're dealing with you're dealing with national exams, and in other parts of Canada, there are national exams that are teaching to the content of the exam. We don't have that same responsibility in Ontario, which is liberating to a degree. But you know, I, I actually engaged my own students in that exercise, and I said, "What do you want the schools of the future to look like?" And I asked them to project like 20 years into the future, what would it look like? And they came up with all of these like super cool, interesting ideas. Not all of them involved money. I think a lot of things, like a lot of this educational reform is kind of around money. But I I think honestly, it has to do with like spaces that we are teaching and learning within, Um, you know, some of the most- Flexibility maybe. Yeah, like flexibility in scheduling, flexibility in like every student needs a, co- a cooperative learning experience in the community. 
this idea of, you know, students needing to do a certain number of volunteer um, experiences, like that kind of learning around bringing members of the community in to connect with our own students, students seeing, you know, what the workplace looks like. We used to have take your kid to work day or take your, take your child to work day. And that was an opportunity to see the work on the ground. But I think that's the that's the part about teaching and learning that I think is the one the part that I will never be able to change. I can't break down the walls, though I'd like to. Some days I'd like to climb out the windows safely, uh, <laughs> even though I teach on the third floor. That's not really a safe thing to do. But I think the idea of like how are we activating voice? I think that educational reform will only have success if we've got the community behind it. We have our parent community advocating for that yeah, kind of change. For it too, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think, you know, like I, I it's interesting. They're introducing um, a new uh, Indigenous studies curriculum in some courses in, in, in Ontario. And there there is a real resistance, even among some of the parents of our own school community around like, well, what about the Shakespeare text or what about the traditional text? And I think a lot of that has to do with if we want to create change, then you have to present what the potential is for change. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you ask a kid to draw what 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 their dreamland looks like. And it, and, and it has lots of exciting things in it. But I think that we have to find creative ways of doing it that don't necessarily involve a lot of funding. And I mean, our classes will continue to get bigger and bigger because, you know, that's the way things go. You know, we tighten, we, we put students in those ways. But I think that if we really, really want to see change, then we have to bring students to the table. We have to engage the community in that discussion, and we need to have some real dreaming about not what do you want to see change, but how do you want to be part of that change moving forward? That's the way it's going to change, because this teacher who's 10 years from retirement will not be still working when that change is in play. But I said to these students, if you don't want your own children come two generations from now to go through the same learning experience than you do, you have to start today. Yeah. And to me, it sounds like leadership, leadership, not only within like the schools themselves, but leadership within like, you know, student bodies, like you were just speaking of right there, leadership from parents, from the communities, I mean, you really have to kind of come together to, to really develop this vision and put it forth in such a way that it's going to lead to some degree of impact. And I don't think it's going to be one person. I don't think no, it's going to no, be one No, no, I think it's, it's, it's several parties that need to kind of come together yeah. to, to make this yeah. happen. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that. I do want to actually slide into this other segment, and uh, I'd love to hear a story related to your work. Oftentimes, one of the most exciting you know, aspects for me personally doing this podcast is hearing sure. some of these stories, and I think for listeners too. So yeah, really eager to hear what you have for us. So uh, there's so many stories I could tell here, but uh, I think the story that I'll tell is probably one that that I probably took one of the biggest pedagogical risks as a teacher, I guess I would say. I was teaching Le Petit Prince by uh, Antoine, Antoine Saint-Exupéry uh, in French to a group of grade 11 students at a school I was teaching at a couple of years ago. And I made a very conscious decision that I wasn't going to read the text before teaching it. You know, teachers often, you know, read the text and you've got questions and you've got a whole big plan. And I decided very consciously that I wasn't going to. And so I arrived at class every day and, and we would go through and different students would take turns reading and then we'd stop. and sort of have questions here and there. And, you know, I had them uh, imagine there's a, a portion of the story where the little prince uh, takes the pilot to all these different planets. And, and that's to teach him different things about, uh, about the adult world, if you've read the text. But, but you know, the, the idea where people are concerned about numbers and they're concerned about power and they're concerned about greed and, and, and um, vanity and things like that. And so, you know, they had to consider what were some of those, like, 
21st century like planets if we were to go to those places. So they were engaging with me in a lot of creative ways. And, you know, we get to the end of the story and, you know, all of us, uh, we were passing the box of Kleenex around because I think what they started to realize is that the story of Le Petit Prince was connecting with them in a real way, that they were like on the verge of adulthood themselves at 16. And they were trying to navigate like what their next move was, what what decisions they were going to make. And in the story, the, the little prince ends up in a field and he ends up meeting a fox. And uh, the little the fox says they're they're engaging in this discussion about how they can become friends. And the fox says uh, in French, il faut que tu m'apprivoises, which means you need to build a relationship with me in order to be able to sustain this relationship. And the little boy is kind of struck by it because he doesn't totally understand, but it eventually comes to mind that you have to invest time and you have to sort of, to the point I made earlier about slowing down your step and sort of reading the situation that you need to build those relationships if you want to sustain them. And so, you know, as we passed the Kleenex box around and, and people were sort of quite emotional about it, they expressed a lot of gratitude for the pace at which we like studied the text. And about two weeks after we finished it, after we all wept watching the more contemporary movie that sort of matched the story, each of them came to me and they and talked about how a certain portion of the story had connected to their lives and how how they were grateful for that that the idea that we'd studied it. And so a couple of weeks later. I think it might have been around my birthday. And they came to knock down my door and they said, can we talk to you for a minute? And I said, sure. And so we went into my classroom and they said, we got you something. We're sorry it didn't arrive on time. I said, what are you talking about? And there was a signed card by all the students in the class and the fox and a stuffed fox. And uh, at that time, I I had just accepted a job at another school. It was time for me to move on. But I Oh, I have. The, I just got the goosebumps as I just said that. Um, but that idea of the fact that they believed that that story had helped them understand the value of relationships with me, with each other, with the world that they were in, with this inanimate fox they were reading about in the story. And it reminds me of uh, of why, as a teacher, once they become my student, they become my student for life. Once I become their teacher, I am also their teacher for life. And I think that that's important. And, you know, I I have been teaching 20 years and I still have conversations on the weekly with some of my students who are in their mid-30s and I met them at 14 and 15 years oh, old. Wow. And they've gone on to do really cool things. You know, they've gone to MIT, they've gone to Harvard, they've, you know, they've defended major law cases, solved major mathematical mm-hmm, solutions, mm-hmm. a bunch of other things. But that coming full circle... They they believed in the relationship. They believed in the investment in the relationship, and they saw that I inv- believed in them, and that kind of solidified for me and what that fox kind of represents. That you have to nurture those relationships, and that can change over time. But the commitment to wanting to nurture it um, is something that will forever stay with me as a teacher. It's important. How lovely! How lovely! I really like that story. I mean, to me, it sort of encapsulates a lot of what we've been speaking about. You know, in your approach mm-hmm. to the craft and everything else, and. You know, what a moment, you know, what a moment for you, you know, mm-hmm. I'm sure you're, yep. as a teacher, I mean, you're giving, giving, giving constantly, but there's got to be these moments once in a while where, you know, the, the students force it upon you to be like, yeah, good job. <laughs> you know, that's basically well, it's, what they're it's, saying. It's lovely like, it's to really, get that it's particularly, yeah. I was going to say, it's lovely to get that feedback too, when often your responsibility is to give them feedback. And sometimes that that's critical feedback. So to be able to have that recognition of like, it's beyond the mark that you just gave me on that last assessment or whatever. 
you know, I mean, I, I have a box that has letters that students have given me over the years. And when I start to get down and out about how life is hard or teaching is hard, I go and read them. Yeah. 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 Artifacts. Nice. nice. <laughs> Nice. There you go. There you go. All right. Well, we are moving on to a pretty nice clip here. And we are rounding the bend in this last segment, a crystal ball segment. And I mean, the elephant in the room right now within a number of different industries, certainly not limited to within education, is this notion of AI. You know, it's Mm -hmm. it's forcing people to rethink their approaches. Uh, You know, it's just turning things upside down. And as somebody as dedicated and passionate as you are, I'd love to hear your take on it, at least initially. Like, this is still so early that it's it's hard to really get a, a, a gauge on all of it. But all the same, yeah, what are you thinking about this right now? I think AI needs to be approached with excitement and not with fear. All right. Um, I, I think that, you know, in some ways, AI becomes the great equalizer. If you don't know the answer to a question, it's like, to a degree, it's in the same way we used to use Google. However, it does lots of other things. And so I think in teaching and learning, the exciting opportunity is the fact that it's a new tool that we need, that we have some responsibility of in order to help students learn how to navigate in the same way that we would have taught them how to use an app on their phone or that we would have shown them how to use the Google suite when it first came out. And so I think to a degree, part of it, I think there's two things here. One, the access to ready-made content is one thing, just even having the content base of how AI accesses that information and how, but the simplicity of a question, I can get about in about eight seconds, a very thorough answer. But like any source, it has holes in it. There's opportunity for critical analysis. And I think that the the 21st century teacher needs to be teaching students about how to look at information, uh, misinformation, the crediting of sources, perspective. Where does that information come from? Where has it been sourced from? And I think also, you know, a a colleague and I were discussing this earlier today um, about the idea of you can jump into a a different point in the learning when you at least have a baseline of content to start from. And so, you know, I could, let's say, for example, I was teaching my students about Viola Desmond. Viola Desmond is a Canadian civil rights activist, Black Canadian civil rights activist. And if the students did not know who Viola Desmond was, I could type into AI and say, who is Viola Desmond? And what was the historical significance of her contribution to the National Association of Colored People? That gives me a baseline within which I can jump off it. And then the students can then say, well, that answers some of the questions that I have, but it doesn't answer all of the questions. And then that gives them an opportunity to jump off for points of curiosity. Now, I've yet to see students use AI to produce any piece of writing. And I think that any good teacher who is supporting their learners throughout a learning process will know where their student's voice is. And that we know that the AI voice sounds like an AI voice. Someone jokingly said that they asked ChatGPT to write a poem in Japanese about, about how to play Frisbee and the, in Japanese. And the student said, that's not bad. <laughs> <laughs> As a baseline, right? You know, like jokingly, they said, yeah. you know, it's not a bad place to start. And I think, again, I, I see it as a tool. It's a tool that is here to stay, that we have to learn to work with it, that, you know, I think part of it, as uh, um, as you kind of alluded to, it, it leverages uh, access to information that we don't have access to. But I think that that it challenges us as teachers to think again, and I say this again because we do it constantly about how to innovate students about working with information. So gone are the days of like, write me a five paragraph essay. 
or write me or answer me this question with simply using the who, what, when, where, why, how. This is actually an opportunity to say, you know, what what information is missing and how can they contribute to that conversation? Exactly. You know, right? Yeah. Yeah, like I like that idea of tool because that's exactly how I sort of interpret it as well. It's a, it's a, it's a tool, you know, and you can choose how you're going to engage with it, how you're going to use it, and bring it into classrooms and whatnot. But also, too, I like this idea of relevancy, you know, the relevancy of it. I mean, there's been some school boards, famously, I think, in the U.S., like banning ChatGPT, and like that. That you know, it's just completely distancing students from reality. I mean, like their 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 lives outside of the classrooms. This is a big part of it or it's going to be a big yeah. part of it so like suddenly like well we're in the learning space now that yeah. can't be part of it anymore it seems a bit ridiculous i mean it is a tool and if you're managing it like you said like you yeah. just have to change your approach it can yeah. be a great assignment for students to dive into like the life of so and so and then yeah. as you said you know, dive into some of these other questions that they might have so you're setting things up in a different way but you're still you know you can still approach it in such a manner that they're going to derive a lot you know, there's a lot of learning experiences that you can still get out of it, you know, and, and absolutely. It, so, I mean, Chris, if you think about it, it's like banning, it's like banning books. Yeah. Right. That's, like, that's like not giving people the opportunity to do yeah. it. Yeah. The idea of like saying, well, you know, we're not, we're not going to let you look at it because you don't have access to it. I mean, like many of our students are teaching us how to navigate lots of things that we, that we didn't have familiarity with. And so I mean, to my point about it being exciting, I think that you have to have trepidation when you're working with any new tool. And and I think that, you know, I mean, in a pinch, will it give you some information that you're going to need? Absolutely. But I think that if it piques a student's curiosity about a different perspective, that's then it, maybe right that, that's an exciting way of looking at it too. And then saying to the student, okay, well, now that we've done that, let's think critically about why did AI choose to include that who's included my favorite question is who's in whose perspective is missing what's missing here and and that idea of like not having to spend you know like six hours getting a baseline the student like these are these students are fast-paced they're curious about the world and like everything is a soundbite yeah so yeah I just yeah I just had this sort of vision of a classroom in the past of you know okay all right students you know let's open to page 52 and then you spend an entire lesson like reading through this and then like answering the five comprehension questions at the end whereas now with something like this it's like okay students you know get onto chat GPT here's the person that we're going to investigate you know find something out about them they read it three four minutes later and then boom then you start asking them these questions you know asking them to critically analyze it ask them to to find gaps or holes or where that they you know feel like things are missing you know it's a whole different approach but you're you're, you're stimulating them in a different way I suppose than maybe you know yeah and I think as teachers you know we have to do that learning with them we we, we often I mean there's often the line of like teachers need to get ahead of the curve I I think the curve is here yeah, and the curve yeah. was here, but the curve got there before we could, because, you know, we all woke up one morning and, and and there it was. We are living with this. It's like the pandemic. We will live with the 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 consequences, the aftermath of these always. And so that when we're doing that investigative work, it's not throwing the students to the tool and say, go and investigate. No, 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 no. The co-learning that happens with this, it, it, it's that idea of, of sort of facilitating learning so that we're navigating uh, together. And then we stop when something feels unfamiliar and we say, well, hold on a second. Like, where, like, where does that come from? That is the value of the teacher, because you know that people are finding different ways to replace 
teachers, right? Could we do the learning with an online platform? Could we do it where the students don't have to have any engagement with the teacher? I mean, I, I hope that that when I when I retire, that we'll still do as much engagement because as we sort of come around here, it is about the relationship. I want my students to know that somebody sees them, that somebody hears them, that they're in a space that is safe, where they can sort of negotiate with each other, where they can try things out, where they can like be called out on some of their behavior or called out on different things so that when they leave my space or the space that we've co-created together, that they will be able to cope with whatever. Yeah. What's those soft skills, right? Soft yeah, skills, yeah. super important. And I think yeah. that like teachers, good teachers are role models of that. If you're going to use chat GPT, do it in the classroom with the students and, 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 and then use that as a model of like not hiding it. We're all doing that work too. Um, and I, and I think that I don't see, I, I'm not fearful of any of it. I'm excited about it. I am, I'm concerned perhaps that the students will get there before we will, but I think that's even more motivation to catch up. It returns to that point of, teacher essentially becoming a bit of a guide, right? A guide. Yeah. You don't have to have all the answers necessarily, but you, you know, you gotta be guiding them along here and introducing them to this and that and, and yeah. allowing them to think for themselves a little bit and steer them back mm -hmm. on course when, when needed. You know, there certainly has to be some degree of boundaries, you know, and what yep. you're trying to accomplish. But, but generally speaking, it kind of comes down to that. It's a redefining of, of what a teacher is. And to me, it kind of encapsulates again, this conversation, what we've spoken about today, you know, I had a you know, fairly good handle on, on, what teaching has become and where it's going again from some of the other conversations I've had, but I feel as though that it's taken it up a notch or three, mm. perhaps, you know, mm. in speaking with you. And I, I'm really, really confident that a lot of listeners are going to come away, you know, armed with a, a much clearer and more defined mm. look at, you know, where teaching is heading in the future. So I can't thank you enough. I mean, it's been an absolute pleasure. We've just blown through this conversation. Well, we're, we're just over an hour here. And uh, to me, it's always a mark of a good conversation. You can just like, get right through it and uh you feel like you're just starting so yeah i can't thank you enough Katie. i appreciate it's been that absolute pleasure lots of engaging questions and you know i mean i think the future for teaching looks bright as i kind of round the the third the third decade of uh of, of starting into teaching and learning it's definitely uh it's definitely what i expected it to be but the opportunities that i've had to learn and grow along the way have been unexpected and i think that that's what um, makes me want to keep doing it you know, the future is bright, even beyond, I'm not looking that far ahead into the future as of yet. But I think that the skills that I have learned as a teacher and the learning that I've had as a teacher only provoke my curiosity to keep wanting to learn. And that's, uh, it's a humbling experience and something that I have the pleasure of doing every day. I'm lucky. Thank you so much. Well, for those interested in learning more about Katie and her work, you can find her on Twitter at KA Travel and on Instagram at Katie, K-A-T-Y, grad. Yeah, and of course, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to tell a friend. You know, it goes a long ways and it really, really helps out. Of course, you can also rate, review, and subscribe wherever you access your podcast. And then lastly, please don't forget to head on over to YouTube. Off the top of the show, I did mention this. You can find the program. We'll have some highlights of the conversation, video highlights, that is, over on YouTube. Just do that search for at life as a dot dot. Yeah. And finally, don't forget to join us for the next episode of Life As A, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living.